I'd like to ask you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this evening, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, I, love, I love that last song. One of the things that I, is sort of a subtle part of it that I, I hope we recognize is that uh, when we're saying God of grace, if you follow the lyrics, we're actually singing that to Jesus Christ. Uh, he's the one whose blood atoned us and the one who's now crowned in glory. And, and so it really is a powerful ascription to Jesus of deity. And, and I think sometimes, understandably so, because even the language of the scriptures, we tend to associate the word God immediately, we think of the Father. So we might be thinking we're singing that song about the Father, but actually the bulk of the lyrics are designed to focus us in on the Son and his, uh, his existence as God as well. Well, a few weeks ago, I said I was going to start a series on Sunday nights and the nights that I get to preach other than the Lord's Supper because we had missionary reports and other things going on on, on the, the church. Uh, really, in a sense, how does, how, does church, how does church work is really sort of what I'm organizing on in terms of what, uh, what the Bible teaches about the organi- organization and function of the church. And a part of the reason that I said I really wanted to focus on that is, uh, one hand, because fuzziness in this, these issues eventually leads to trouble. When people just go to church and assume that they understand uh, what the church is and how it's supposed to operate, they just sort of assume that. It actually is, is precisely the place where churches can drift off course or uh, can be unprepared for challenges that may face it. That is, if if there's no clarity and unity on understanding things, then that's the place where, where problems uh, kick in. And really, it's uh, the nature of, of human life is such that the longer we do something, the more we start to think about that particular practice or whatever it is, is that, one, it's the way it's always been done, and then inside the church, that it's actually the biblical way to do it. I mean, I, I was reminded of that even this, uh, this week at the conference. One of the guys that was at the conference was in seminary with me, so like way, way back there. And uh, we finished one or two of the sessions, and we actually had had the congregational singing like we have it in our church. It was actually being led from the piano. And, and he said to me, so, and there's a little bit of joke in it, so don't, don't overreact to what he's saying. He said, but so how long have you guys been, you know, doing Lutheran worship? And I looked at him like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, no, no, no song leader. He said, I mean, that's the only place I've ever seen that is in Lutheran churches. And I said, I said that's interesting because there were no churches that had it until like the middle of the 1800s. And he sort of looked at me. I said, so you'd have thought Spurgeon was a Lutheran? Because he, they never had some, someone stand up front and lead. And he's going, sort of looking at me like, really? I said, yeah, it didn't. Song leaders didn't come in until Ira Sankey along with D.L. Moody, in the late 1800s. I mean, the idea, if, if we transported someone from back there, 17, 18, early 1800s, into a church where there's somebody up there waving their arms, they'd have gone, what is this novelty that we brought into the church? But because it, it became not a novelty, but sort of the standard tradition of churches, you go into a church where they don't do it, and you go... What is this novelty that has come into our churches? And, and I'm pretty sure no one at the church of Ephesus 
was standing up there and go, could you turn in your hymn books, please, to such and such, and I'd like to lead you in this song. But, but what happens is we just get so accustomed to what we do that we actually start to think that that's actually the way it's always been done all the way back to the early church. And, and, the, and the distinction between uh, practices that just sort of become customs and traditions and practices which are biblically required is always an essential thing for churches to keep in their mind. That is, there are things which we just do because somebody decided that was a good thing to do and it sort of caught on. Hopefully it was a wise thing to do. I think in, in a lot of cases there are things that haven't been so wise, but they sort of catch on and become popular, and, and so we do them. And in fact, every, every era, including our own, has those. Okay, I mean, you ever, have you ever looked at, those of you who are old enough, you ever looked at the clothes you wore in the 70s and the 80s? And you think, who came up with the idea that that was a good idea? But at the time, everybody was doing it, so it seemed like, you know, seemed like a fashionable thing to do. I mean, that's human life. That's the way things work. We get influenced and we make decisions, and, and, and we ought to always be doing them on the ground of biblical principle. But the reality of it is applications are, are often very time-bound. That is, they, they happen to function in a particular time and place and then become a custom, and then sometimes we become attached to the customs. And if anybody changes the little custom, then we think they've changed the Bible. And that's just, most of the time, most of the time that's not the case. And, and so it's important, I think, for us to regularly remind ourselves of what is non-negotiable and what, what, what might be able to change. And particularly when it comes to the church, how, how are we making certain that we're shaped by the Bible, not shaped by tradition or culture as to actually how we understand how the church should work? I mean, that's, that's a part of, a part of uh, what, what every church needs to do. And, and in fact, it needs to re- be regularly on our uh, on our minds. I mean, I cracked a little joke when I announced the shift to Wednesday to Thursday night, in part because I'd like to keep us recognizing the flexibility, because there's not a Bible verse that says midweek prayer meeting has to be on such and such a night. But sometimes people go, well, I mean, all biblical churches meet on Wednesday. And, and they start to think like that, and in fact, that's, that's not, not really in the Bible which night it is. If you're going to say it's in the Bible, then actually, folks, it's every night. Because if you look at the book of Acts, they were getting together every night to talk about the truth and pray. So I'm okay with that one. Anyone want to make a motion to that effect? In the reality, that's why I didn't look at Rick. I was trying not to look, because I knew he'd, he'd, he'd do something. Okay. Down. Down, boy. So we just have to remind ourselves regularly of these kinds of things so that we are able to keep the main things, the biblical things, the main things, and not have things creep in or cause uh, division in an assembly which may not actually be a biblical pattern of operating. And, in fact, we want to make certain we're always true to the Scriptures, so I think it's good for us to remind it. And, And as I said last time is... Uh, I think, I really do, I I mean, I honestly believe the most significant 
anything on the agenda for you at the Bema seat before Jesus Christ is going to be how you have served him in the local church because that's why he redeemed you. And, and so I think actually thinking about the church is very important for every believer since it is at the center of your relationship to Jesus Christ. You've been called into, fe- into the fellowship of his son, placed into the body of Christ, and you have responsibilities that come with that that you cannot, you cannot fulfill well unless you understand them, unless you embrace them, unless you recognize that the health of our church is dependent on you as a member of the assembly. And, and so we need to, I think, regularly remind ourselves of those things. And, and I, I feel real burdened about it because I think there's just so much cross-current to that. So that, so that all of life is planned and then thought of the church comes in. When in fact, what you're doing for Christ in the local church ought to be the unifying center of your entire life. Everything else in your life should be arranged in connection to that. Because that's the thing that's eternal. That's the thing for which you were redeemed. It isn't something that if you... If you once you've got all of your life organized, then you think, okay, so now I, I need to make sure I can squeeze in the church piece of the puzzle. But actually, it is the big rock that goes in, then everything else should fit in around it. Because you can't do all the other things right if you don't have that at the center. You can't have a family that honors God if the church of Jesus Christ is not at the center of it. Husbands, you can't love your wife like Christ loves the church if you've got the church over here. Wives, you cannot, you cannot fulfill your God-given role if the church is just over here. Parents, you cannot bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord if the church is just sort of over here. You can't be a witness for Christ properly apart from the church since the commission of Jesus Christ is to lead to what? Make disciples, seeing them baptized, and then taught to observe all that Christ commanded. So even your witness for Christ is, is out of joint if it doesn't flow into the church as a, as a part of the mission of Christ. So, so it's got to be central, and, and so I hope we will uh, recognize that as we plan our lives, we think about our lives. Last time we looked at the issue of congregational church governance, simply that the final human authority within the assembly actually resides in the assembly congregated for del- deliberation. I put it very awkwardly that way in this sense that uh, it, we're the church, okay? But that doesn't mean there's, there's 500, 500 centers of authority. It's actually the authority is when the congregation comes together and assembles for the purpose of deliberation. That is, we... we we have made decisions as a congregation about what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do in light of the Scriptures, and we meet to talk about those things and make decisions on the basis of them. So the authority resides in the congregation when it assembles, in a, and when I say a deliberate assembly, that is that the people in the congregation are beginning to talk about and decide on issues of pertinence to the congregation. The final human authority is right there. That's what God has established. And I tried to 
make that case for us from looking at the scriptures about how the congregation chose its leadership, commissioned messengers, handles church discipline, uh, is responsible for the governing of its own affairs, guarding its doctrine and, and purity. All, the, all those commands, all those responsibilities are not directed to a subset of the church. They're actually directed to the assembly together. It's, it's the congregation that has the responsibility to, to guard and, and to guide those things in that way. And so there's no authority outside of the church or above the congregation which can dictate to it. Uh, that's why we have independent congregations, and we use the word, the technical word is autonomous, which simply means self-ruling. The congregation governs itself. It's not governed by outside and, and all the members of the church are vital to the proper exercise of that, and leaders serve the church, not the church serving the leaders. And it's actually that point that I want to I take and in, 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 in elaborate on a little bit more. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and, and look at verse 1. Gives, it gives a statement here about an office in the church. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Then verses 2 down through 7 list qualifications of what a person who aspires to that office must meet. Then drop, if you would, down to verse 8. It says deacons likewise must be men of dignity and then goes through qualifications. Now it doesn't say here in verse 8, if anyone aspires to the office of deacon, he aspires to a good work. But that word likewise is actually pointing back to that, right? I mean, he just said in, in verses 1 through 7, there's an office of overseer. The qualifications of that office are like this. Then he goes in verse 8, deacons likewise. What's the likewise to? Let's to verses 1 through 7. The office of deacon and then the qualifications of deacon. So, so this passage is, is one of the chief passages, really the primary passage in which we as Baptists would say, when you talk about the leadership of the local church, there are two offices in the church. There are pastors, that's what an overseer is, and, and deacons. Those two offices are, are really what God has established as, and what we could say is uh, permanent offices in this sense, a church, a church is in good order if it has those offices. Right? It's possible that a church at some point might not have a pastor. They might have someone who steps in as like an interim pastor, which wouldn't be a permanent office, or they may just have people filling a role of teaching and preaching, but they're not actually in the office of pastor. A church doesn't cease to be a church because of that. It's just actually a church out of order. It's not, it's not being ordered like the, the pastoral epistles here tell us it should be ordered. Because remember the text we looked at last week down in verse 15 of chapter 3. It says, I'm writing these things in verse 14. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So, so here's what God expects the church to be. It is a congregation of his people, and among that congregation, there are people who serve in capacities, offices, one of which is called overseer or pastor or elder. 
And we'll, we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, actually next Sunday night. I'm not, I'll go into more detail on that, but that's the first office. The second office is the word here called deacon. Those are, the, those are really the, the focal point of them. So when we look at this, uh, what it might surprise us is though the word deacon, for instance, is used 29 times in the New Testament, it actually is only used two times clearly as an office. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, says the church of Philippi with the pastors and deacons. That's use number one. Use number two is in 1 Timothy 3.8. And so only two times is there described an office of deacon. There is, because there is, the word simply means servant, or like the King James would translate it, minister, someone who engages in a ministry. But, but there had arisen in the early church, I think by divine direction in Acts chapter 6, and then divine instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that that was to become sort of a standing office. I remember Acts 6, there's, there's debate about the, the care of the widows in between the Jewish and the Hellenist widows, and so there began to become some trouble. And so the apostles came to the congregation and said, choose, choose from yourselves men who can attend to this ministry, this place of service. But it doesn't say who can fill this office. That's why I didn't list it as one of those. But it's described as a ministry that actually sits alongside of the ministry that the apostles were talking about. That is, they will take on this ministry of serving the tables so that we can give our attention to prayer and the ministry, same word, the service of the word. So, so what God establishes for the life of the church is in terms of leadership for the congregation, a group of men who would serve the needs of the congregation and then those who would serve in the shepherding capacity of the congregation, those who would be responsible for the feeding and leading of the church. That's, that's, what, that's how it breaks down in that regard. And so God, uh, God's expectation for a local church is that those two offices would exist. And, I'll say it this way, only those two. In terms of permanent offices. Okay, so, so here's, uh, and this is just like a little bit like inside baseball church government for us, all right? The state of Michigan requires a third office called trustees. And so, what, and it's not just the state of Michigan, it's, it's a part of incorporation kind of stuff. And so, so, what often can happen in churches is that they end up with three offices. They end up with pastors and then deacons and then a third office called trustees. In fact, I just uh, a, week and, a little over a week ago was talking to a pastor who is having problems in his church among the various offices. And as he's talking about it, he talked about a guy who's the chairman of the trustees and another guy who's the chairman of the deacons. And actually, when they all come together, they're sort of one board, and then this guy who's the chairman of the trustees, which isn't even a biblical office, is actually the chairman of the whole group. And I didn't say this because I wanted to be kind, but, I mean, that might be why you're having problems. You don't actually have a biblical form of government. There's nothing in the Bible about trustees. 
So, so in, in, I think in great wisdom, way, way back, I'm not even sure exactly when, in our church actually, because we have to have that requirement, we actually have a subset of the deacons that are identified as the trustees. So they carry on the task that the state of Michigan requires them to be, and, and so they can function in that, but it's not some separate group. Because usually what happens in Baptist churches or Bible churches, any kind of churches like that, the trustees become the keeper of the, of the money and buildings and all of those kinds of things. And, and the reality of it is uh, you can't do much in life and ministry without, without the facilities and the equipment and the money. So practically the trustees start to become the controllers of the church, and lots of churches have that problem. And that's the outgrowth of of not saying, no, we need to be controlled by what the scriptures say, and it only recognizes pastors and deacons. It doesn't recognize a third group. Sometimes over here, and, and, and we may talk about this later in, in, in the series, but over here people take this singular group, which is called pastors, and actually split it in two. And they call one group ministers, and the other group, elders. And so what you end up having is pastors and elders, and they're not, they're not viewed as the same thing, so that means they're actually two different things, right? If you can have somebody who's a pastor, but not an elder, or an elder, but not a pastor, then you don't have one group. You've got two groups. Now that technically flows out of, if you remember few weeks ago, I talked about the Presbyterian form of government, that is the rule by the elders, that, that technically grows out of that because they make a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders, and ruling elders are not necessarily the pastors that can teach the Word of God, because if you look through those qualifications there, an, an overseer must be able to teach. In Titus chapter 1, when it talks about the people who are supposed to be elders, it says that they have to be a hold forth sound doctrine and to be refute those who are contrary to it. But so to make a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders is actually to make a distinction that the Bible won't permit. Uh, in Acts 28, Paul is talking to the elders, the pastors, the overseers of the church at Ephesus. And, and listen to what he says there. Take heed to yourself and over the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. All right, so he's talking to the elders, and he says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and then he says to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. So the elders were overseers who were shepherds. There wasn't, there wasn't two groups, there's one group. So there are not three offices, ruling elders, teaching elders, and deacons. There's not four offices, ruling elders, teaching elders, deacons, and trustees. There's just deacons and pastors, elders, overseers. That's, that's the New Testament pattern. And, and a church needs to keep that in mind because when you start to multiply things that God has not ordained or appointed, it, it always leads in a direction that, that produces problems in that regard. So I'd like to talk for a few minutes about the relationship of the relation, if I could put it this way, the relationships of these two offices. And, and so here's the first way I'd like to talk about it. 
the relationship of these offices to the congregation. Because I, I spent a week, a Sunday night, talking about congregational church government. And I started tonight talking about congregational church government, that the final human authority in the congregation is the congregation itself assembled. So if we've got two groups of leaders, deacons and pastors, how do they relate to the congregation then? I mean, if you were drawing up an organizational chart, which would be an unusual thing in the Bible, but it's not an unusual thing for us in our culture, how would you draw it up? Okay, well, if the congregation is the final human authority, then where would the congregation go in the organizational chart? It would actually go at the top, right? If it's the final human authority, the way we would look at that is that it's in the top position. That means that pastors and deacons have to be under the congregation. And that's true because pastors... And deacons are actually called by congregations, chosen by congregations to serve them. So an idea that functions like this, the congregation's here, and then if you move them up, and I'm just going to move them both up, and they're over the congregation, that would actually be an unbiblical way to perceive of it. It actually needs to be congregation at the top, deacons, deacons, I had them over here, right? Deacons and pastors below that, and in that regard, because, for instance, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3, Peter says to those who are overseers, who are shepherding the flock and serving as elders, do not lord it over them. That is, do not, do not have a disposition of using your authority in a domineering way. You lord it over the congregation, because... Pastors actually are not to be dominating the congregation or lording their authority over the congregation. They're, they're called, in fact, to be leading the congregation in, in that regard. So it's not, um, if I'd put it this way, okay, because sometimes people will talk, I mean, there's a certain, there's a certain mindset in churches, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, I, I think it may be, may be shrinking a little bit, but, but here's, you know, like in, a, in, in Baptist churches, they would say that the pastor is the voice of God's authority in the congregation. I mean, I'm going to mock a little bit here because it's partly my spiritual gift, okay? Sarcasm. The man of God is the one who finds out the will of God and tells God's people what to do. See, at that point, it's actually saying the, the pastor is in charge to the degree that he tells the congregation what the will of God is. And, and that's, that's not a biblical frame of reference for what pastoral leadership would be. That would actually be more like lording it over. I probably have told this story before, but years ago, Mike, Pastor Mike Carding was on the phone with another pastor in the state, and they were talking about uh, dress standards you know, modesty issues. And the other pastor said to Mike, I can tell you God's will for the length of a woman's skirt to the quarter inch. And Mike goes, wow, what is it? He said, it's whatever I tell them. Hebrews 13, 17. 
Obey and submit to those who are your leaders, as those who watch for your soul. So basically, he was taking that as, I am the final distiller of God's will and people. I mean, not that long ago, in, in, our, in, our, in our relative area, there, there was a pastor who took that to the point of, he, essentially, if you had to do anything in your life, you needed to come and get permission from him. I mean, change the cabinets in your house, buy a car, because the pastor was the voice of God's authority into the life of the individual believers in the congregation. That is not the relationship that the pastors have to the congregation. That actually reverses it in that sense and has it be functioning in a, in a lordship kind of a way. The, 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 probably the greatest abuses of that are, the, are, the, are sort of like the, you know, the little mini-pope who asserts his authority inside the church. But there's also a form of, of it that shows up in what I, is called technically elder rule. And that's opposed to congregationalism. That is, the, the elders have all of the authority and they make decisions on behalf of the congregation about everything. So, so in a technically an elder rule kind of congregation, uh, the elders would basically just tell you what the budget is. Your only vote on it is that you, you know, give or don't give. But, but you wouldn't have any say in it. If, if we decided as elders to go buy some piece of property, we have that right because we're the elders. If it comes down to discipline, the elders make the decision on the discipline, not the congregation. See, and that would, be, that would be a conception that has the elders above the congregation, not the elders below the congregation. Exercising authority given to it by the congregation. And over here, it, it sometimes happens in churches that people begin to think, if they think organizational chart, they start to think like this, that the relationship of the deacons to the congregation is that the deacons are like the board, the governing board of the congregation, therefore exercising authority over the congregation as its board of directors, which is clearly a model that we're all familiar with. We just don't happen to be familiar with it from the Bible. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that would operate like that, that the deacons exercise that kind of authority over the congregation. In fact, there's not one verse of Scripture that would say that the deacons exercise any ruling authority over the congregation at all. I mean, the, the passages that we just talked about where it's mentioned in terms of the office, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the deacons and the overseer, which so that sort of gives you a tip as to what's involved in there, right? The servants and the overseer, Philippians chapter 1, they're just mentioned alongside it, but Acts chapter 6, there's very clear guidelines about what the congregation, or what the deacons were doing on behalf of the congregation. They were simply serving the congregation. The congregation had needs, and in order for those needs to be properly taken care of, the congregation chose men to serve to meet those needs. In that particular case, it was the, the administration of the care for the widows. It wasn't, it wasn't that they said, let's choose some board of directors to govern the affairs of the church. That's, that's uh, completely and purely the encroachment of American culture into the governance of the church. I mean, think about what I talked about song leaders, right? I mean, where's the biblical basis for somebody 
waving their arms to get us all on the right time. There is no biblical basis for someone thinking that it has to happen. And I would suggest to you it's the exact same thing in any kind of a church context that establishes a conception of the authority in the church as being the congregation is here and there's a group of uh, members of the congregation elected to serve as the board to govern the congregation. That's, that's not the pattern in the New Testament. All. It's, not, it's not the way God intended the church to do. The fact is that the deacons were chosen so that they could, uh, they could engage in service on behalf of the congregation that would free up those who were shepherding the congregation to focus on the primary spiritual issues, right? You take care of this ministry. They're both ministries. You take care of this ministry so that we can take care of this ministry. But it wasn't saying, hey, let's choose some people to become over us. It was, let's choose some people to serve, to meet the needs of what God has for us. Given the list in this passage, we, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna go through and unpack them. I really do want to point them to you, point them out to you and remind you of them, is that the congregation is responsible, therefore, for the choosing of godly gifted men to serve in these roles and to uphold these standards. It's not, uh, it's not, it should not be viewed uh, in any way as a, a just a, a raw political process but it is the identification of people who give evidence of genuine spirituality and godliness so that they can give themselves to the task of service. I mean, if you go back and you you read this passage, both for overseers and for deacons, and the focus is on the character of the individual. If you add, add to this list over here, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, add Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, Add 1 Peter chapter 5, and you get a picture of what the character of those who would serve as overseers, pastors, elders should be. If you take this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and then actually Acts chapter 6, it says, Choose out from among yourselves men, and then it lists quality, characteristics of those people. That the focus in there is their godliness and heart for Christ, living a life of obedience to the Lord. It's not uh, pick out for yourselves, either as deacons or elders, uh, primarily people who have, and I started to use the word charismatic, but I don't mean that like as in the, you know, like the speak in tongues, heal people charismatic, the kind of dynamic personality charismatic. Or pick out, pick out representatives for your congregation. So the congregation has, has this kind of breadth in it and these little groups in it, and so here's what we're going to do. The deacons will serve something like the House of Representatives for the congregation. But to think that way is actually to think that what's being chosen is a governing body, right? But that's not what, what God wants chosen. God wants chosen men who have a heart to serve, to, to help the congregation, to meet the needs of the congregation so that the Word of God is advanced. And that's, that's where the focal point is on it. Now let me just talk practically about our church, because uh, what I, I'm not wanting this just to be a, 
sort of a, you know, a mini doctrinal lesson on it, but also have us be thinking through it as a church. In our congregation, uh, the process, so we don't really have a process given to us in Acts 6 other than it simply went from this. The spiritual leaders said to the congregation, choose seven men who can do this work. It doesn't tell us how that was done. Okay, So it wasn't like, okay, and so the first step was they did this, the second step was do this. Just they said, choose seven men. Somehow they deliberated and, and interacted with one another, and then they came back and said, here's the names. These are the men that we want to serve. The congregation chose them. And in our context, the congregation chooses the men who serve as deacons for our church. The way our, our congregation has decided that that would be done, the, 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 the basic components of that are twofold. One is the current deacons serve as the nominating committee for future deacons. That's what our bylaws say. So when we start the process of selecting deacons, that process actually starts with the current deacons. They, they are the ones who will present to the congregation a list of names for the congregation to decide. Okay, So that's the way our congregation has done that. Now, uh, the second thing is that that, that, that list, that final list, will, must be presented to the congregation a month before the annual business meeting. So that's why always near the end of December we put into the bulletin a list of names that are nominated for the office of deacon that will be voted on at the annual business meeting at the end of January. So it's from the end of December to the end of January. But internally, here's how the process starts. Sometime early in the fall, usually around September, I will remind the deacons in a deacons meeting that we need to start the process of nominations. And so we've done that a bunch of, well, not a bunch, a couple different ways. One is that, that I would hand them a list of all the men in our church who are currently serving in some capacity and give them that list and say, take the next two to four weeks to look over that list and pray about who from that list you think should go on to the nominating list. Uh, or uh, what I'll say to them is you've got a couple weeks now I want you to be taking and looking at what the Scriptures say about it, and you think about the men that you believe would, would serve well in this role of deacons. And, and since we usually do five, because we, we have, uh, I mean, just practically, our church has 15 deacons. They're on three-year terms, and they rotate. You can't succeed. So, so there's a group of five, and another group of five, and another group of five. In December, five of those guys will finish their term so we'll be looking for a, another group of five. All right, so I'll say to these, the, the current deacons, so I would like to you, you to give me a list of five names that you think should fit. And so here I'm going to just do a little announcing. Some of you haven't given me your list of five yet, and it was due on, it was due on Thursday, all right? So send that to me. All right, so the reality is we have 15 men give me five names apiece. All right, so we have a, a, a pool of names. And we start down from that, and they give it to me simply because I'm coordinated. I don't put any names on it. I'm just, I'm just facilitating, working it through. So then we, we would go, now in this case, we go through to make certain that they're a member in good standing, that there, that, that there are, might be qualification issues that somebody might not know about because that might be a confidential issue and, and commitment to the church. We go through that. 
we come down with a list like this, we submit it back to the deacons, and we say, okay, now choose five from that list. Okay, so now the 15 men take that more narrow list, and they choose five from it. So it starts to narrow it down, and then once we've got that ordered out, then a call is made or contact made with the people who are on that list to say, uh, the deacons are interested in putting your name before the congregation. Would you prayerfully consider if you would be willing to do that? And so we just start down the list in terms of, you know, when they chose five, this is the person that had the most people recommend this person. Just start down the list until we have seven names. Because we always do that, we put up seven names, the five that are chosen serve, and the two are alternates in case someone has to step down. All right, and so that's, that's the process that we go through so that we can have the congregation involved in the process by men chosen from the congregation doing that. The pastors of the congregation do not actually choose the men. I think sometimes people think that. Um, we don't, we don't, we don't, we, the only time we would exercise any statement in it is if, if you look at that list of qualifications, this is what I was alluding to, and if there's something that disqualifies them in that list that the rest of the men may not know about because we end up doing shepherding, counseling, those kinds of things, at that point then we'd say, discreetly really, we'd just sort of just allow it to be passed over. We wouldn't, we wouldn't turn around and tell the deacons what's going on because it's a confidential issue. So... So we just, we just handle it in that way. So once chosen, uh, they serve for three years on, as a deacon in our church, uh, as I said with the rotation of it. According to our bylaws, the only way they could be removed from being a deacon is by a vote of the other deacons. So, and I'm, I'm just telling you what it is. It's, it's, that's different, for instance, than the pastor. The pastor has to be called by 75% of our congregation and the pastor can be removed by 75% of our congregation. All right? And there's a little bit of a difference then with the deacons. The deacons are chosen by the congregation, but if there's a problem in the working out of the deacon situation, they can actually be removed by the deacons themselves. That's where our bylaws are set. And, and our bylaws are set that way because that's what the congregation voted at one point to approve those bylaws. So the congregation established that authoritative principle about how the deacons are to conduct themselves. And the congregation voted to establish the authoritative principle by which a pastor is called and a pastor can be dismissed. All right, so that's, that's the organizational chart. That's the showing that the congregation is actually at the authoritative position over both deacons and pastors in that regard. All right, so what about their relationship to each other? And I'll just... Finish, this, finish with this quickly. But the relationship to each other is, is uh, think of that organizational chart again. All right, so obviously if the congregation's at the top, that's different than the way a lot of people think about churches. All right, but what would be the box below that? I mean, would the box below that be the deacons and then the pastor? Or would it actually be the congregation, the pastor, than the deacons? I would actually contend that I don't think either of those are very good. All right? Because 
The Bible doesn't teach that the de- certainly doesn't teach that the deacons are over the pastors because that would actually be that would be creating another board of director kind of thing. And you'd actually have in that American kind of a culture set up, you'd have the, the, the deacons are serving as a board of director and the pastor is the chief executive officer who answers to the board. And that's, that's not a biblical pattern. The pastor answers to the congregation, not to a board of governors in that regard. But I also don't think that, and, and this one is where it gets tricky, right? Because deacons remain members of the congregation, right? And if pastors are called on to lead the congregation... There is a sense in which the deacons need to follow the pastor, right? If it's, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. So it doesn't say let the elders and deacons that rule well, it's let the elders that rule well. Or, or actually look in, your, look in your passage. I think it's sort of an interesting thing here. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. The qualification of the overseer. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then look at the parenthesis in verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So, so who's responsible, according to this text, to taking care of the church of God? That, that leadership capacity would be in the office of overseer. But notice down in verse 12. It says, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. But notice what's missing. It doesn't say, because if the deacon doesn't take care of his own household, how shall he take care of the church of God? The reason the deacons need to be demonstrating that they're good managers of their own household and lives is because they were entrusted with the care of the serving of tables, right? I mean, they had a responsibility to organize and administrate and implement the benevolence of the church to care for the widows. And the people who are going to do that kind of service need to have some competency to do that. But it wasn't that they were given the responsibility to care for the church. The leadership of the church actually is in the hands of those who are marked off as overseers. That's that's what I was meaning before. You have overseer means overseer, right? I mean, that's not a tricky one. They're the ones that are overseeing the work. They're caring for the church. Or as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, they have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Okay, And that's why Hebrews 13, 17 would say the thing about obey and submit to those who are leaders as those who watch for your souls. That is, it's the care of the church, the watching of the soul, the, the advance of the ministry of the church is under the leadership of those who spoke to you the word of God. That's what verse 7 says in Hebrews 13. So it's, it's over here. So there is a sense in which deacons should follow the pastoral leadership because they're a part of the assembly. But in reality, they're chosen by the congregation to serve the congregation. So it really ought to be something like the congregation, the pastoral leaders and the deacons, but sort of over here, with a direct line to the congregation and maybe like a dotted line to the pastor. That is, they wouldn't be leading against the pastor or over the pastor or thinking their arrival to the pastor, but, but like Acts 6 says, right? What happened in Acts 6? The, the, the folks who were shepherding the congregation were getting diverted into something that was a good thing to do, right? 
I mean, if pure religion and, and undefiled is this, to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction, if that's pure religion, isn't taking care of the widows a good thing? But here's what the guys who are responsible for the word said. We can't do that. You need to choose men who will serve in that capacity so that we can give ourselves to the responsibility we have for prayer and the ministry of the Word. So they were chosen by the congregation to work alongside of the shepherding leaders in order to facilitate the needs of the congregation and the ministry of the pastors. So it doesn't really fit our kind of a concept of a straight-line organizational chart. But it's important to recognize because, like, like the man I was talking to about 10 days ago about this, what was happening was a power struggle was going on. Because they had a corporate board structure, there were guys who were seeing themselves as actually over the authority of the pastor because he's the guy who's the chairman of this board. And what, what at that point was becoming congregation some kind of board, and then pastor. And, and, and one of the things that I am so thankful for is that, that, that the, the men who serve in our church as deacons and our, our structure as a congregation is that, that um, I mean, I can, I can honestly say in 26 and a half years, I have never seen a conflict between these two groups. I mean, there's never been any kind of opposition to each other. Because we understand what our responsibilities are. I mean, I say every year, because we have five new guys, I will never do, by God's grace, I will never do what the congregation asked you to do. And I will never ask you to do what the congregation has asked me to do. And I won't do what the congregation is supposed to do. And you can't do what the congregation is supposed to do. We all have to know what the right hat is. Mine's a pastor hat. Mine's not a deacon hat. So I can't make decisions. I can't make decisions that you have told the deacons that they can make on your behalf. So I won't make those decisions. Those are their decisions. But they actually can't make decisions that you've asked me to make on your behalf as the one who's responsible to lead the church. So I won't ask them to do that. Because if you don't know the roles that God has for you, it inevitably leads to potential problems. It leads to to confusion. I mean, think of your own home. When the kids want to be the parents, that doesn't work out too well, right? When, When the husband decides he wants to be the follower in the home, that doesn't work out right, does it? When the wife says she wants to be the final authority in the home, that doesn't work out right. I mean, what what a proper functioning home is, everybody knows what God has said they're supposed to do, and everybody gladly embraces it and does it. The same thing is true in a church. When we all understand what God has told us to do, and we say we're going to trust God with that, submit to his plan, and trust him and obey him, then the church functions the way God wants it to. It'll always have bumps because the church is full of sinners. Pastors are sinners. Deacons are sinners. Congregation members are sinners. 
It's never going to be absolutely smooth, but you eliminate hurricane kind of turbulence when you say, hey, let's do the thing God has given us the responsibility to do so that we can function, on, focus really on what matters, which is doing the work of God, not having power struggles between subsets in the congregation or a group of people over here and a group of people over here. Because at the end of the day, like I said, the leaders of the church actually serve the church. Meaning, in, in the economy of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not your title that matters. Remember, that's what Matthew 20 says? It's not the one who has the most people under him that's big shot. It's actually the person that serves the most. It's, it's the one who's ready to wash feet. And that washing of feet is whatever God said it's supposed to be. Okay? So, and, and just think about that Acts 6 passage. What if the guys who were responsible for preaching the Word said, you know what, there's more immediate gratification in serving food to widows. I mean, you can be a popular guy doing that. It's not so popular to devote your strength to prayer where nobody can see you or study where nobody can see you. So what if this guy says, you know what, I want to be popular, so I'm going to slide over and actually do the work that God appointed to another group of people. That would harm the church. Do you know what would harm the church? If, if the people the congregation chooses to serve, to minister to and care for the needy, decide, hey, you know what we want to do? We want to call the shots. We want to focus on having the power. Then the church is hurt. The church is healthy. The church functions well when everybody understands what God wants them to do and they gladly embrace it. And I say this, and I've done this a number of times, and I mean it sincerely, that I can stand up here and say all that I said because, precisely because it's not a problem in our church. I mean, I, there's no, like, okay, Dorn's trying to stomp down whatever. It's just the opposite of it. In 26 and a half years, I have never once had any kind of conflict in which the deacons, I felt like the deacons were trying to rule the church. Not one time. So, so I'm not coming at it from any kind of thing other than to say, you know what, I don't, I'm pretty sure I won't be here for another 26 years. All right? But if the Lord doesn't come back 26 years from now, somebody else will be standing up in this pulpit. And you know what I want him to be able to say? At that point, Whatever, however long maybe it would be, 12 years or 15 years into his ministry, going, you know what? God's given us a great spirit of unity and harmony in the church because we all understand what God wants us to do and we're all doing it. That's what I want to see. I want to see what God has done here for 66 years. Unified, strong, healthy church be that way until Jesus comes back. And it'll only happen is if we all know what the Scriptures say, we're all committed to the Scriptures and to one another so that the work of God can go and the name of Jesus can be exalted. All right, let's pray.